Our sermon text today is Luke 19, verses 28 through 44. When I set out the sermon schedule many months ago, uh, for these past number of months, I uh, looked where we were, and originally this sermon was going to come up in two weeks, two weeks from today. And, and I kind of looked at it and thought, wow. To do the passage on Palm Sunday, the week after Easter, just, just didn't seem right. And so I had to reconfigure things and work things out and massage them a little bit and combine a couple sermons here, and here we are. Luke 19, 28 to 44, the story of the first Palm Sunday here on this Palm Sunday, the week Beginning today and running through next Sunday is a special week for Christians. It's referred to by some as Holy Week, not because people during this week are especially holy, but because it is around the events of this week that all of Christianity is really centered. Though Christ's life spanned over three decades, Fully one-third of the writings in the gospel speak about this one week and the events that occurred therein. Thursday night we'll have our Maundy Thursday service where we celebrate the unending love of Christ for his disciples and the institution of the Lord's Supper. Following night on Good Friday we'll gather with two other congregations and remember the great sacrifice that Christ made for us on Calvary's cross. And next Sunday, we remember the most joyous of occasions, that first Easter morn when Christ rose from the dead, guaranteeing new life for all who trust in him. But we start this week today, on Palm Sunday, right where it began almost 2,000 years ago. Jesus had just visited the home of Zacchaeus, you'll recall, and, and he had just told the parable of the ten minas, and, and it's the time of the Passover, a time where people would stream into Jerusalem as pilgrims. Jerusalem would swell in size from its, its normal population of 80,000 people to over a quarter million people filling the streets. And against this backdrop, we turn our attention to the 19th chapter of Luke. Verses 28 through 44. This is the inspired word of God. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, 
as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Our Lord, we pray that you would speak to us today. Cause us to see your glory more clearly. That we might worship more truly. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. Amen. Well, as we look at this passage today on Palm Sunday, I want to talk about one thing. The thing I want to talk about is crying. Crying. It's a word that has kind of a vast semantic range. It can mean all kinds of different things. We're not going to look into all the different things that crying can mean. But this morning, I, I want to look at three different things it can mean, especially as they're outlined in the passage that we've just Bread. The first of these is, is to call out in a loud voice. Crying to cry can mean that. It can mean to cry, call out in a, a loud voice. It's what it meant when days gone by when, when towns would have a town crier. Right? They they didn't have mass media, there, there weren't TV and and radio to spread the news of important events of the day. Many people were illiterate, so even if there were pamphlets that were printed up or newspapers, many folks couldn't read them. And so to spread the news around, what would happen is somebody would be sent out to share the news vocally, verbally, with a loud voice, calling out. The town crier would say, Hear ye, hear ye! And would proclaim... Uh, the levying of some new tax, perhaps, or, or declare that something had occurred, the birth of a royal child, maybe. Uh, some, some other such news, some other event. It would be proclaimed loudly, called out by the town crier. We see, similarly, a, a crying that takes place in today's passage as Jesus was drawing near to Jerusalem, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. As, as he was drawing near to Jerusalem, we see that the, the 
whole multitude of disciples, it says. Not just the 12, not just those who were closest to Jesus, but, but the whole multitude, all those who were following him at this time. Remember that those crowds varied in times. They got bigger and smaller and bigger again, and, and they varied in size. We don't know exactly how many people we're talking of here, but it's, it's a, a number of people beyond that internal group, and they're crying out in this passage in praise of the one who they believe will deliver them out of oppression. Remember that the Romans are ruling and the people of Jerusalem are waiting for a king to rise up, a king to come to be the promised Messiah, to lead them out of bondage. They think bondage to Roman rule. And Jesus is the one that they have seen is the Messiah, the one who is their coming king. They're right in that, although they are wrong in the kind of kingship that he will set up and the kind of deliverance that he will provide. But they cry out to him rightly here. This messianic psalm routinely sung during Passover, Psalm 118 that we just read, where they sing of the rejected stone becoming the cornerstone, and they cry out, Hosanna! Save, we pray. This cry to God that he would save them, that he would save the nation, that he would deliver them out from Roman rule. And they see Jesus coming as that king, and so they they say in verse 38, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They say peace in heaven because what they're proclaiming here is, is that they understand that if indeed the Messiah has finally come, the king is finally here to deliver us. God has finally consented to send him. God must be pleased with us. We must have finally gotten our act together enough that God has said, okay, you guys are good enough now. You've done enough now. You've earned this blessing, and so I will send the mighty deliverer who will take you out of the bondage in which you set. It totally misses the whole point of grace, doesn't it? The idea of grace that God helps us not because we deserve help, but because we need help. He gives us the aid that we don't deserve, but the aid that we require. And when we miss the idea of grace, we miss the whole reason that we should cry out to Jesus in praise. We, we praise him for his graciousness, for the fact that, that he does deliver us, but he does so not because we've earned it, but because he is a loving, loving God. Well, the people were crying out nonetheless, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They said, so quiet these people down. This ruckus is driving us crazy. But it wasn't just the loud noise that was driving them crazy. You see, they, they understood, and rightly so, that that if they were to allow this to go on, there would be opposition. We'll get back to that in a second. 
Jesus responds to the Pharisees here who have told him to quiet these people down. And he says, much as the choir sang today, you don't seem to understand. If we quieted these people down, if they were completely silenced, the rocks themselves would cry out. You see, the, the fact of the matter was, was this was the appointed time for the king to be praised. And there was nothing that could stop that. No Pharisee, no Roman power, no power of man anywhere could stand in the way of Christ receiving the praises that he deserved on this occasion. He would be praised, even if it were the rocks needed to be the worshipers. You see, that's what children of Abraham, children of Israel are. They're, they're worshipers of the true and the living God. And when Jesus says this about the rocks would cry out, it, it reminds me of, of when John the Baptist said to, to Jews, you know, you kind of think that just because of your place as children of Abraham that you are good with God, but, but God can raise up children of Abraham from these stones, he said. And so he does all the time. He raises up children of Abraham, those who have faith in him, those who worship him, those who trust him, from those who had hearts of stone that he turns to flesh by his grace, by his goodness, by his plan, and by his mercy. He takes those who are not children of Abraham, but gives them faith that they might be. And so it is that we, by faith, become children of Abraham, those who can join in the praises of the king. Now, honestly, I'm going to say that if I consider the worship that we have here every Sunday morning at 10 a.m., I'm not sure that, that necessarily I would say that the worship we have is marked out by, marked by uh, uh, crying out in praise. I'm not sure I'd necessarily say that. At times, yes, maybe. Uh, but, but more commonly, we, we Presbyterians in general and, and Presbyterians here at Calvary in particular tend to uh, personify that, that moniker that's been given to us, the, the frozen chosen. You know, just kind of sitting here silently, uh, unmoving. Uh, we, we, we've kind of earned that, I think, uh, unfortunately. Uh, now, now, I'm not saying that our, our worship should be some kind of circus, but, but it's reasonable that each of us would ask as we come here on a Sunday morning, am I truly excited about the fact that, that I was lost, but, but am now found? That I was blind, but now I see? Does it thrill me that I belonged to a kingdom of darkness, but I've been brought into a kingdom of light? Does my heart really grasp the reality that I once was dead in the sins and trespasses in which I once walked? But by the grace of God, I have been made alive to walk in the good works 
that he has prepared for me. You know, we, we have good theology. We understand all of these things cognitively. We know them to be true intellectually. But too often, I fear, our, our words that we say and sing don't match the mode in which we say and sing them. <laughs> yeah. By grace, we have been saved through faith. But since when did Presbyterians all become like Eeyore, right? I've been saved. Let us rejoice. It is an amazing thing. A great and glorious gift we have been given. Think about the greatest gifts you've ever been given. Maybe think back to when you were a little child and it was your birthday or Christmas and, and there was some gift that you had been hoping for and longing for and, and, and you saw it wrapped up and you thought that might be the gift. And, and you tore into the wrapping of it and got it open. And, and as you tore the wrapping paper off of it, you saw it was what you had hoped for and dreamt for. And you were so excited. And yet we're given a far greater gift in salvation, forgiveness, the grace of God. Ho-hum. Let us know the excitement that we should have. Again, I'm not saying that we necessarily should, should be dancing up and down the aisles. <laughs> There's a place for order. There's a place for decorum. And that's fine. But our worship should not be completely dispassionate. I, I wonder if perhaps it's a reaction to the fact that sometimes we see a, an empty sentimentality in worship in some segments, and, and it's a reaction against that. We, we don't want to be those types of people who, who have that kind of cotton candy worship, you know, that, that's all sweet, but there's no substance to it, right? And so we react to that by being very staid, unemotional, but see, the, the right reaction to an empty sentimentality in worship is not emotionless worship. <laughs> Rather, it is a passionate worship that is grounded firmly in the truth of the gospel of glorious grace that is given to us by Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so we should be that way in the one hour we spend together here on Sunday mornings, but also in the other 167 hours throughout the course of the week as we go about everything we do, doing all things to the glory of God. Every last thing we do is an act of worship. And so we should passionately live our lives because the passion of Jesus deserves our passion. The passion that he has shown for us demands a passion for him. In our songs of joy, in our songs of praise, in our, in our exulting in the truth of the gospel and how we proclaim it, and in the way we live our lives in the acts of love and service toward one another in response to the love and service that Christ has given let us cry out to God in worship.
every day of the week. That's the first kind of crying I wanted to talk about today. There's a second kind of crying I wanted to mention. And that's kind of a whining about things. You know, we talk about it sometimes. You, you, you know, our language, we, we have phrases in our language like, what, what do we call somebody who's always whining about something? They're a crybaby, right? You know, a crybaby. Or, or if somebody is constantly, constantly complaining about something that happened, you know, it's something that we can't do anything about now. It's all happened in the past. What do we tell that person? We say, don't cry over spilled milk, right? It's, it's, it's a phrase, it's this idea of crying is this idea of whining over something that's happened in the past. And so, so we see here with the Pharisees an example of these kind of criers. They're whining. They're complaining. Verse 39 again, the Pharisees say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. The Pharisees didn't like the ruckus going on, but like I said before, what, what they really feared was the opposition that might arise on account of it. The opposition that might arise from the Romans if there's too much of a, a ruckus, too many things going on and, and things seem to not be in control, the Romans might come in and, and squash things. Right? They might lose their position of privilege. They might lose their place because the Romans come in and put an end to everything. Or, or if they were to kind of exert too much force there as the Pharisees, they're afraid that the people might rise up against them. And so really what they're concerned about here is they're concerned about their own place, their own position, their own privilege, and they don't want to jeopardize any of these things. It's a totally self-centered, self-exalting point of view that the Pharisees have here as they're crying to Jesus about his followers. Contrast this now with a couple other folks. Back in verse 28 through 36, Jesus tells some disciples that they're supposed to go and get a colt. Matthew tells us actually that, that there was a donkey and her colt that they got. And, and this is all done to fulfill a prophecy in Zechariah 9, verse 9. But we see in this how, how in control of everything Jesus is, how how sovereign he is over all things, even as he heads to the cross. This is not some big cosmic accident. This is not some sort of plan B. Jesus is in control. He knows all that is going on. He is completely sovereign over all things, on down to where you might find the colt of a donkey tied up. And he sends the disciples off to go get this colt. And and it's kind of a weird request he makes of them, isn't it? You know, just imagine if, if I told you guys, hey, can, can you run down to, to Center and Davison, and, and there's, there's a donkey tied up there, and, and just go get it and bring it here. Well, well but Pete, that's not your donkey. <laughs> uh, it's going to be kind of awkward for us to kind of just go take this and... And, and Jesus says to him, well, if somebody says something, just say, well, the Lord needs it. That'll be fine. Really, Jesus? <laughs> That'll be fine? Well, they, they go do what he says, and when they get there, sure enough, the owners of the colt say to him, why are you untying the colt? What are you doing with my colt? And they said to him, the Lord has need of it. 
As we read Luke, he says, and then they had a real long argument back and forth. No. He just said the Lord has need of it, and they took it. The owners of the colt didn't put up a fight. The Lord has need of it. Well, that's good enough for me. Wow. That's something. The Lord has need of it. Imagine it from the owners of the colt's perspective. I was thinking about this yesterday. Somebody rings my doorbell. I open the door, and they say to me, hello, can I have your car keys? I say, excuse me? And they say, the Lord has need of it. Oh, okay, sure. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> I don't know about you, that's probably not how I react in that moment. But it is how the owners of the cult reacted. They said, sure. And we know nothing about the owners of the cult. We don't know they're rich or poor, male or female, old, young. We, we, we don't know anything about them. We don't know their names. It's lost forever in the annals of history. Much the same as we don't know which two disciples were sent. We, we don't have any idea who they were. Nowhere in the passage do we read either the disciples or the cult's owners crying about the situation, complaining about the situation, fussing with Jesus about the situation. The only thing we specifically know about them is that they namelessly and faithfully did what the Lord had called them to do in such a way as to receive no credit whatsoever from man. We know nothing about who they were. But the Lord knows. The Lord knows. And we see in that this lesson, it is far better to be anonymously faithful than to be of high position and great repute yet crying at what the Lord calls you to do. Let us be committed to that kind of faithfulness. So the first kind of crying is calling out loudly. The second kind of crying is whining. The third kind is, is quite simply the kind of crying that most people think of if you were just to say crying. It's, it's being, being overcome with emotion to the point of tears. Uh, that sadness filling your heart so that it flows out of your eyes. Too often on Palm Sunday, I think people, people look at the passage up to verse 40 and stop there, just with the riding into town hosannas. But if we go on from there, we see some valuable lessons. Valuable lessons because sometimes I think within the church we think that, that our lives must always be smiles. Nothing but happiness and cheerfulness. No sadness for us because Jesus has saved us. You know, some of our hymnody even kind of betrays this kind of thinking. You know, kind of lines is, you know, I found Jesus and now I'm happy all the time. That's a lie. That's a lie. I'm not happy all the time. I still have sadness. We still have grief, and that's all right. And we see that here in the example of Jesus. There is a place for weeping, 
crying tears of sadness because we see Jesus who was perfect in every way exhibiting this particular behavior right here. It's a consistent teaching throughout scriptures. We read weep with those who weep, not merely you know, be present with them and let them weep and kind of you know, let them cry on your shoulder. No, we're called to, to weep with those who weep, to mourn with those who mourn, to enter into their sadness with them, to grieve as they grieve. We read in John eleven thirty five. 35, if you want to start your Bible memorization plan, start with that verse. Jesus wept. Everybody, okay, here we go. We're going to do this as a team, all right? We're going, to, we're going to work on Bible memorization. John eleven thirty five. 35, all together. What's that? Jesus wept. There we go. We all memorized a Bible verse this morning. It's a short verse, shortest one in the Bible. But it's a powerful verse. Jesus wept. It's at the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus is dead, but, but Jesus knows. Remember, Jesus knows where the colt is tied. He surely knows that five minutes later, he's going to call Lazarus out of the grave. And Lazarus is going to be standing there with him alive. And they're going to be rejoicing in the wonderful work of God through Christ Jesus, our Lord, and in the life-giving work that he has through his power. And even so, Jesus wept. Just like he wept here. And in his weeping, we see that we too should weep. Why do we weep? For the same reason Jesus wept. Because of the brokenness of the world in which we live in. It's interesting, he didn't weep for himself. He very well could have, couldn't he? He, he knew what was coming. The sting not only of the whips tearing apart his flesh, but the sting of betrayal, denial, and abandonment by his closest friends. He knew that coming was excruciating pain, not only of spikes driven through his arms and feet, but even more so, pain of being forsaken by a father with whom he had experienced perfect, eternal, loving fellowship. He knew that there was coming agony, not, not only of, of suffocation as, as his own weight hanging from the cross made it impossible for him to breathe. But he knew that coming was the crushing weight of the wrath of God as the sins of the world were laid upon him. He knew this was all coming. He, he knew it was in the very near future, just days away. Yet he doesn't weep for himself. He weeps for Jerusalem as he drew near the city. He saw it and he wept over it. Not, not even, he got a little misty-eyed, got a little choked up. 
No, the, the word there actually conveys the idea. He burst into tears. He sobbed. Have you ever, have you ever wept like that? Or, or perhaps even if you haven't, have you ever seen somebody weep like that? Where you, where you weep and sob and the tears are just rolling down your cheeks. Your shirt is becoming drenched by your tears and your body is convulsing an agonizing heartache. This is how Jesus wept. Why would he be so emotionally moved? Why? Well, we see in the next verse 42, would that you, even you, he says, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. He's looking at Jerusalem whose very name means foundations of peace. Yaru Shalom. Foundations of peace. There's great irony, isn't there, in that, that they, they live in a city called Foundations of Peace, and yet they don't know where true peace comes from. They're looking in all the wrong places for all the wrong things. They, they've said peace in heaven and glory in the highest, but they don't realize It's not because they've finally gotten their act together, but because God has come in Christ Jesus to be the means of peace by his grace. Verses 43 and following, we see Jesus speak of the days coming when the enemies will barricade and come against them and tear everything to the ground. And we know from history that this is exactly what happened. Jesus' words prove prophetic. Less than 40 years later, in 70 AD, the Romans laid siege to Jerusalem and laid waste to it. Josephus, the historian, tells us in History of the Jewish Wars, while the sanctuary was burning, neither pity for age nor respect for rank was shown. On the contrary, children and old people, laity and priests alike, were massacred. The emperor ordered the entire city and the temple to be razed to the ground, leaving only the loftiest of the towers and the portion of the wall enclosing the city on the west. All the rest of the wall that surrounded the city was so completely razed to the ground as to leave future visitors to the spot no reason to believe that the city had ever been inhabited. It was the complete antithesis of peace, wasn't it? That's what was coming. They had thought that peace would come through military strength and political power. There's cruel irony in this. For this city, the foundations of peace amongst their cries for peace, to the prince of peace, knew not what really brought peace. And oftentimes we don't know either. We live in a world that's a broken world, and we think that, that we might be able to get peace if, if we have political strength and military power. We look to the wrong places for it. If, if we can get enough votes, if we can get enough laws passed, if we can essentially develop some kind of institutionalized faith where everybody has to get on board with it, then, then we'll all be good and we'll have peace then. But that's exactly what they had in Jerusalem. They had an institutionalized faith. An institutionalized faith saves nobody because it's not a true and living faith. The people of Jerusalem had an institutionalized faith and 
they followed all the rules and they did the things they were supposed to and it was leading them straight to hell. And so it is for many in our world. We need to know that peace comes only through Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. For we are all sinners. Deserving death. Death that will be ours unless there is a sacrifice. We read before in Psalm 118, bind the sacrifice with the cords to the horns of the altar. That's what happened when Christ was bound to the cross. He was our sacrifice. And on the altar of that cross, he was sacrificed for our sins. And it's only through trusting in that sacrifice that we can have real peace. And so like Jesus, we ought to be ones who weep. Weep at brokenness and sin. First of all, our own brokenness and sin. We must realize that we all fall short of the glory of God. And even when we know Christ Jesus as our Savior, we continue to walk in sin. We turn our back on Christ. And so let us know our own sin and let us weep at it. Have you wept at your sin? Not just wept at the consequences of your sin, but wept at your sin. We should be grieved by the lostness of those who have not yet recognized the hour of Messiah's visitation. So grieved that we would be overjoyed to share the good news with them. So in conclusion, know that this happened just days after Palm Sunday. Both the crowd and Jesus would cry out again. This time, though, the crowd's cries were not cries of Hosanna, but rather the cries, crucify him, crucify him. And the cries of Jesus would be, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he cried that out, he did so so that we might never have to cry that out. So that we would never have to cry out, my God, why have you forsaken me? For he has shown us in Christ Jesus and he has given us Christ Jesus as the sacrifice that has atoned for our sins. The wrath of God which should have been ours, he took on himself with our sins laid on him. The Father turned away from him when it's us that he should have turned away from. He has shown us grace upon grace. And so we must ask ourselves this Palm Sunday and every day really, which cries will be our own? Will they be like the cries of the Pharisees, whining and complaining about what God calls us to do, completely focused on ourselves and what we want? Or will they be the cries of those who weep with sadness at the brokenness of the world and weep with joy that God has done something about it in Christ Jesus our Let us cry with praises to our King. Let it be true of us always. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you. Words can hardly convey how thankful we are 
We want to praise you. We want to worship you. We want to sing, and we cannot sing as as loudly as we would desire or as, as boisterously as we desire. We wish we had, as the song says, a thousand tongues to sing your praises. But even though we have but one tongue with which to sing, may you know our hearts and know that is what we desire. Help us to worship you in a way befitting of that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.